This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. It's always a joy to come here and be part of this. Some of the best years of my life, I truly mean, were spent walking in these halls. I was telling some of the guys across the hall before chapel that when I came to the church, I was a Sunday morning only Christian, and that was only when Sunday morning was convenient, and God just slowly started working my life there as I was at Sterling, um, First Baptist Church of Sterling, and little by little, He moved in my life, and I got involved in the life of the church to the point where He moved and brought me to the point of seminary. And then God really did a work in my life during the six years that I was here and enjoyed those years immensely. The fact that I'm standing here is proof that God can do work in anybody's life, and it's a joy to, to see that work. We live in a country now that seems like identity politics is one of the most recent battle cries. Some of the people are always looking to be part of some minority group. Everybody's searching to identify with one minority group or another and then to, to be opposed to those who they claim then would be oppressing whatever group they're part of. Just watching as the Democratic Party starts filling up with candidates right now, you see how fast the, the candidates are trying to stake out claim as identity champions of as many minority groups as possible. Uh, one conservative blogger that I read a while back, he said that after one of those candidates claimed at um, uh, being part of an American Native American heritage was proven false, he said, I don't know if I have enough popcorn to watch. All of the virtue signaling and identity politics posturing that's going to come over the next year. What all these efforts reveal, though, is that people naturally tend to identify with others around some sort of commonality, some identity that, that they find commonality around, and, and the world offers us endless suggestions of how we can do that, what things should be fundamental to our identity. Maybe it's our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our political party, educational background, whatever it is, there's something that we should group around. Yet I would hope that we recognize as Christians we're to live differently. We should live differently. So how as Christians do we identify ourselves? That, that's the focus of the text I want us to, to look at this morning. I, I'm in the middle of a series going through Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians, and this last Sunday we completed chapter 3, and this morning we're going to look at the same text I looked at this past Sunday with my church. Go ahead and turn there if you would, and we will be reading from verse 23 to the end of the chapter and using that as our, our passage this morning. Paul writes, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We come to this point in Paul's letter here, and he's been presenting a long logical argument against these Judaizers. 
Um, so you know the Judaizers are the opponents that, that came into town behind Paul after he had traveled through the region of Galatia there and planted some churches. And these Judaizers were disrupting the churches and ultimately Paul's then demonstrating destroying the, the gospel message of God's grace as they attempted to add requirements of the Mosaic Law back in. Uh, specifically circumcision seems to be one of the main things that they were trying to add in. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has demonstrated that salvation cannot come through works of the law. He's argued that the Judaizers have misread salvation history. He's also argued that in the, the process of misreading it, they did not understand that they needed to go further back. So, so he took them further back in time. He said, if you're going to look at history, you have to go all the way back to Abraham. And he went back to Abraham centuries before the law and showed that salvation has always been based on faith in the promise of God. And God specifically included Gentiles in that promise all the way back at the time of Abraham. So now he's pointing out that an accurate assessment of salvation history necessarily recognizes that the Mosaic Law was temporary. It was there fulfilling a role until Jesus Christ came, and, and that now that Jesus Christ came and things are different. All of salvation history has been pointing to this one moment in time when the promise of Abraham would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. A at that moment, salvation history has taken on its most definitive form of faith. No longer is faith in, in the promise of God, is now in the person and the work of Jesus, who sums up the promise of God. So the Judaizers were misrepresenting salvation history because they misunderstood the momentous impact of Christ upon history. This is the impact of, of Christ upon salvation history that, that remains central now in Paul's thoughts as, as we move into these particular verses. Paul's been trying to very carefully define the, the gospel message of grace, and that work of defining it will continue for another chapter and a half. But, but before Paul moves into another section, he, he wants to take just a moment to, to pull the threads of his argument together and show them that they must understand fully the momentous impact that Christ has upon salvation in history, to understand this impact upon their lives. He wants to make sure they truly contemplate what Christ has done. And just as the Galatian readers need to contemplate that, we must contemplate it as well. You see, faith is now faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For all who come to faith, Christ is to be our core identity. Christ is to be our core identity. Saving faith is in the person of Christ. Saving faith is in the work of Christ. Saving faith is what unites us to Christ. And for that reason, Christ is to be our core identity. This is such a simple statement. And yet it carries such momentous implications. Implications that were to realign the Galatians' perspective of the world. Implications that are to change our perception of the world as well. Implications that undercut all of the identity politics that, that we're surrounded with today. In these final verses of chapter 3, there are two specific implications that, that come as a result of Christ being our core identity. Christ is to be our core identity. And the first implication of this truth that Paul develops is that we are to identify with Christ rather than with any specific tradition. 
that Judaizers were all about those traditions. Tevi was not the first Jew to sing about tradition. The Judaizers were all about tradition. Christ is to be our identity rather than any specific tradition. The Judaizers, they came along and they valued their identity as being named by God as the chosen people, marked by circumcision. They did not want to give up that tradition now that Christ has come along. They, they wanted the, the new Gentile believers to join them in their tradition and to agree that that meant they needed circumcision. Paul, as I said earlier, has always shown that actions of any nature like this are opposite to faith. But as he rounds out this discussion, he addresses the underlying area, what, what the underlying error that led to this mistake. Their underlying error was misplaced loyalty toward that which from the beginning intended by God to be temporary. The law was only intended to hold a temporary slot in history. It was a stopgap measure until Christ came. Verses 24 and verses 25 both contain a, a special word that Paul uses to describe the stopgap measure. In the New American Standard that I read, it's translated as tutor. The, the King James uses the, the translation of schoolmaster. Neither of those are probably the best translations. They, they suggest that, that the law was in some sense fulfilling an educational role. The New International Version and the ESV, they, they both use the term guardian. That, that might be a better translation. It's difficult to translate this because Paul's using a word that, as you may know, is a very specific word re referred to a role that we just don't have in our society a very specific role. In, in the society of the day, it was common, particularly among the wealthy, for them to have a, a slave fill a very specific role. The, the role that slave filled, oftentimes an older slave who could no longer do manual labor, the role he was given was to watch over the child of the, the owner. The slave was assigned to watch over this child in a sort of custodian type of role. He, he was not directly responsible for educating the child. He was responsible for making sure the child got to school and came home from school. He was responsible to make sure the child went everywhere he was to go and make sure that as he went to those places, he was protected, he was not misbehaving, he was doing what the owner would expect a child of his to do. Uh, probably today the most similar word that we would have to, to give this kind of idea would be that of a nanny. A nanny, when you say that word, instantly brings an image to mind. It brings a person, a, a function to mind. That's what this word that, that Paul uses does. The, the difference is that the word Paul used described a role that was in place until the child became an adult, usually somewhere around the age 18, whatever time the owner would de decide, the, the, the child's father would decide is, is adulthood. At that point, this role ceased. But until that point, this person had this custodial role. And Paul uses this illustration now to show that that's the point that God used the law for. The law was intended to have a temporary role. It was there until maturity was reached. The law served as a custodian over the Jews until the age of faith in Christ arrived. Now, believers are to be treated as, as full-grown sons. There's no reason to hang on to the law. There, there's no reason to keep a loyalty there. That loyalty that they had is to shift to Christ. That's what maturity brings. Now, now I expect we recognize it's hard sometimes to shift our loyalties. 
we, we all have a natural tendency to hang on to tradition. I remember when we closed the Christian school that was part of our church. My daughter was a sophomore at that time. She was going to be a sophomore. And that meant that for several years, she had identified herself as a Sterling Christian crusader. Now, suddenly, she was forced to force the transfer over to Bethany Christian School. And for the first time in her life, she was going to be identified as a, a Bethany Christian Bruin. Up to that point, the Bruins had been a rival. They had not been our tradition. Our tradition had been to cheer against them. It was hard for her to change that tradition at first. It was even strange for me to come to the first game and, and start cheering for the Bruins. That was not the tradition. Well, for the Jews, their identification with the traditions of the Mosaic Law are far deeper than, than that of any sportsman. The Mosaic Law was completely intertwined with their lives. Their, their national identity was in, intertwined with the Mosaic Law. Their, their religious identity was intertwined. Their family identity was intertwined. They, they instinctively recoiled from the thought of setting aside the Mosaic Law. Yet that is exactly what Paul says should be done because all these traditions are temporary. They now have something permanent. Jesus Christ. He is to be their identity. And the reason is because he is superior to the Mosaic Law. Jesus did what the law could not do. He provided justification. It wasn't that the law was bad. It was given by God. It had a purpose. Its purpose, as Paul laid out, was to show them that sin was real in their lives and that they could not be justified by works. Still, now they would let go of that because Christ had come. Christ could now be their identity. Christ must be their identity, not their tradition. This really is an implication of salvation that I expect we all struggle with. Not with understanding it. These are not difficult thoughts. These are simple ideas, but, but it's an implication that's hard to implement. We love our traditions. We do. We embrace our traditions. We identify with our traditions. No matter what the tradition is, we grab onto them. And the reality is a lot of our traditions are good. Take the church that I've served for an example. My church has traditionally been identified as a independent, fundamentalist, Baptist church. I believe those are good things. The church has a tradition of the type of music that we use. It has a tradition of the, the translation that we use. It has a tradition of the structure of our service. It has a tradition of when we meet for our various meetings during the week, and, and so on. There are a lot of traditions that, that come together to make up the tradition of my church. Yet, my identity is to be in Christ not in my church. I'm a Christian before I'm a Baptist or any other of these traditions. These other traditions are all vastly inferior to Christ. No matter how good they are, they are temporary. Christ is permanent. I need to ask myself with brutal honesty, do I hold on to Christ tighter than I hold on to all these other traditions? Christ is to be our core identity. Traditions become deeply intertwined with who we are. Yet when Christ bursts into our life, at the moment of salvation, he immediately gives us a new identity. And that identity is to be our core identity. 
continuing to identify with any other tradition ahead of Christ damages the gospel message. It belies what Christ has truly accomplished for us. The Judaizers needed to recognize this implication. We need to recognize this implication as well. Examine yourself this morning. Is Christ your core identity? Christ is to be our core identity. That, that means that, first of all, we are to identify with Christ rather than with any specific tradition. Christ is to be our core identity. The second implication, there were two, the second implication is we are to identify with Christ rather with than with any specific demographic. Rather than any specific demographic. Verse 28 here is a glorious verse. It's a well-known verse. It's also a frequently abused verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul here is describing in this verse this amazing new reality that, that comes with salvation. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Human history is fraught with constant divisions. People cluster themselves to, together based on some common trait, be it nationality or race or whatever. That, that's the whole basic basis of identity politics. Find a common trait that you identify with and then recognize that those who don't share that trait are likely to oppress you. In this verse, Paul points to three of the, the common demographics of his day. Ways in which the, the population were divided into separate groups. There were Jews and there were Greeks. Clearly, this is the way the Judaizers were looking at the world. There were Jews. Then there were slaves and free men. Everyone was one or the other, either a slave or a free man. And then, of course, there were male or female, the, the two sexes that, that God divided humanity into at creation. Every single person hearing this letter read to them in the churches there in Galatia would be on one side or the other of each of these three sects. That was simply a given. And yet Paul says, now, because of Christ, more specifically because of their faith in Christ, that saving faith in the person and the work of Christ, because of Christ, they should no longer think in these given categories. Christ has united them all. United them all through their shared faith. They're now part of one group, a new group, a glorious group, a, a group that, that contains all the spiritual descendants of Abraham, a group that are heirs to God's promise, the group that is formed of those who are in Christ Jesus. And that new group is to be their core identity. They are Christian before they are Jew or Greek. They are Christian before they are slave or free man. They are Christian before they are male or female. Christian. Christian. Christ is to be our core identity. Again, this is not a hard concept to understand. The, the challenge comes when we apply it to our lives. Remember I mentioned that verse 28 is frequently abused as a verse. One of the most recent forms of abuse uh, has resulted from taking that verse out of its context and, and reading it in absolutely liter um, rigid literal fashion. The contemporary reading focuses on that phrase, there is neither male nor female. 
aha, the claim is made. See, there it proves that the archaic idea of binary structures is obsolete in the New Testament Christian era. We, we cannot restrict sexual identity or, or more specifically gender identity to male or female. Male and female no longer exist. There, there's no such thing. Now, now I am sure that every man sitting here is sufficient, uh, a sufficient Bible student to know that that reading of the verse is flat out wrong. If not, I feel for you when you're in Brother Miller's class. We know that's wrong. Paul is not making the point that, that these distinctions are erased by Christ. Rather, he's saying these distinctions are secondary to Christ. It's a bastardization of this verse to attempt to use it to support the war against binary, biologically assigned genders. All attempts to divorce gender from biology are ultimately just attempts to divorce sexuality from biblical morality. The, these are attempts that we must completely reject. They're, they're, they're attempts to acts of unbelief, and we as true believers must reject them. And we must resist them. We resist with the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul articulates here in other places. Yet when I look around this room, I, I don't expect that the main issue that most of us have with this verse lies in the blatant misuse of it by the gender fluidity warriors of, of today. I expect that most of you would be in agreement when I say that that's misuse of this verse. And, and it's easy then for you to sit there and to, to think in your minds, amen. Well, I'd agree. That's a bastardization of this verse. The problem, though, it's always easy, as I heard another pastor recently say, to preach to the congregation who isn't here, to, to talk about the issues that we don't have. But that's not what I want to do. My, my desire is to have the Spirit of God apply this verse to our lives. His word needs to be applied in areas where we need to change. After all, this really isn't a verse for us as believers. It's a verse for us. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You, Christians. This is not for unbelievers who might attempt to misuse it. This is for us. Christ is to be our core identity. I am not convinced that, that we really get this verse in the American church. Why, you ask? I'm convinced that if the American church really got this verse, then Sunday morning would cease being the most segregated time in America. All week long, Americans work side by side with people from other nationalities. They, they engage in numerous conference calls and, and various conversations in which translations have to occur so that the business can be conducted. All throughout America, men and women go fill up their cars with gas and go buy groceries in grocery stores when people with other skin color are doing that right alongside of them. And yet, when America gathers to church on Sunday morning, when we come together for the sake of worship, much of that diversity is filtered out as, as America gathers into churches that are mainly ethnically and racially segregated. And the most segregated time in America begins with Sunday morning worship. When it comes to worship, we as Jews want to worship with Jews, and with Greeks with Greeks. We as slaves want to worship with other slaves, and as free men with other free men. All of the distinctions that are to be secondary in Christ seem to rise back up to the point of being primary. Yeah, we know that, that someday in heaven, 
men and women from every tribe and tongue and so forth will gather before the throne of Christ and will be saying they're praising him. And, and we know that as believers, we'll be part of that vast, wonderful group. And that's someday. Now we can make a choice. And the choice we make to worship is to worship in a much less diverse manner because apparently these distinctions still matter. Let's be honest. If your church is anything like mine, this is largely what is going on there. I, in my church, we do have a variety of nationalities represented. There, there's a mixture of races present each, each week when we gather. Still, when, when I look at, at my church and I see the people gathered before me, we do not reflect the demographics of the cities that surround us. And I have to ask myself, why? Could it be that, that Christ is really not our core identity? Could it be that Christ is just one of the identities, along with all the others that we hold? We're Republicans or Democrats. We're white or black. We're English-speaker natives or Hispanic-speaking natives. We have all these differences. The fundamental point that Paul is driving toward is, is that there's really nothing earth-shattering when Jews gather with other Jews and celebrate their Jewness. Or if we want to update the, the reference, there's nothing earth-shattering when fifth-generation Americans want to gather with other fourth-generation white Americans and celebrate their white Americanness. Same goes for African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans and Filipino-Americans and so on. These kind of gatherings are nat natural. After all, Republicans like to hang out with other Republicans. Golfers like to hang out with other golfers. Middle class with middle class. Stamp collectors with stamp collectors. It doesn't matter what demographic we choose. Like enjoys gathering with like. Every possible demographic imaginable naturally likes to gather with others of the same demographic. There's nothing earth-shattering about that. What is earth-shattering is when individuals from all these different demographics gather together because above and beyond all these various distinctions, they hold Christ in common. Christ. When Christ is most valuable. When Christ is the core of our identity. When all these other distinctions pale and these natural dividing lines are, are eliminated and, the, and Christ is held up as first and foremost, that's when the world takes notice. I well remember one Wednesday night several months back when I almost teared up because I happened to see this reality in action in my church. There were three ladies praying together. We have a, a prayer meeting Wednesday night, and three ladies were praying together. Two of them were senior ladies, and we would not be surprised to see these two ladies together in any place. If they were out eating together, it would make sense to us. We wouldn't be surprised if we saw them arrive for uh, an event. We wouldn't give a second look. They were senior elderly white ladies. But the third member of the group was a college-age Filipino. She was not naturally the granddaughter of either of these ladies. You could tell just by looking. She wasn't naturally their granddaughter. She did not fit in. And yet there they were praying. Praying together because the three share Christ. And the reality is, he is all they really share in common. And they are praying together. This is the point. If Christ is our core identity, we should anticipate that these other things become secondary, and as they become secondary, we will naturally have a blurring across all those other various demographics because Christ draws us together. 
we do about it? What can we do about our current situation? Well, we don't do this in our churches. This past Sunday, I offered my church three suggestions, and I'll give them to you as well, just briefly. First of all, I would suggest that we each need to prayerfully examine ourselves. Examine ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to show us where we may need to change our thinking to make Christ our core identity. We must be willing to place all other demographics secondary to Christ. Secondly, we should pray and work for opportunities to share Christ with others, including people of other nationalities. We may have to intentionally develop relationships with others of other nationalities and races to be able to do that, but, but that shouldn't be hard. They're already our neighbors and our co-workers. All we have to do is intentionally build relationships with them. We need to look at people as image bearers who need to know the one whose image they bear and then seek opportunities to introduce them to him. Even if they happen naturally to be in a different demographic than we are. And then thirdly, we should pray that God will transform our churches. Pray that God will providentially make us less segregated, that he will bring people to us, and he'll bring us to people, and he'll unite us together into a church so that we can be more reflective of our community. Pray that he will do this so that we can become increasingly effective to joyfully magnify Christ to everyone around us. Christ is to be our core identity. We are to identify with Christ rather than with any specific demographic. Our culture is consumed with identity politics. We are to be consumed with Christ. Our culture is consumed with virtue signaling and, and identity championing. We are to be consumed with Christ. Christ is to be our core identity. That implies, as we've seen here, that first of all, we need to identify with Christ rather than with any specific tradition. And then secondly, we need to identify with Christ rather than with any specific demographic. This past Sunday, as I preached this sermon, an African-American visitor came in midway in my sermon. He stayed for about maybe 10 minutes, and then he left. And on the way out, he talked to one of the men that was in the lobby sitting at our welcome table, our welcome center, and he said he was leaving because the pastor had said the word slave far too many times, and that just was not right. Sadly, his actions demonstrate what happens when Christ is not our core identity. How do you identify yourself? Christ is to be our core identity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together opening your word. Father, I thank you for these men and the churches that they represent. And Father, most of all, I thank you for the great privilege that you give us to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. May he be our core identity. Father, may we identify with Christ and Christ alone. And may we be busy about the work of proclaiming the glory of Christ, the, the saving work of the gospel message to the entire world around us that needs to know him. And Father, may you do a work so that we can see men and women from all races and ethnic groups and nationalities surrounding us come to a saving knowledge of Christ, joyfully worshiping him to bring glory to yourself. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.